Hello, welcome to PSR People Speaking Rail. I'm Mike Bowden, just still here from Freight Waves, uh, host this show and the Stockouts. But this uh, show, we're going to be focused on the chassis leasing and chassis pool um, industries. And this is really a follow up to what we um, wrote up, actually, which I should say Joanna wrote up, has had an article um, about a month ago where Joanna interviewed the track intermodal CEO, Dan Walsh. And we're going to have Dan on the show here um, in, in a moment uh, and you know, what's been through some Q&A on you know, sort of the outlook of rail intermodal. Um, and it was actually uh, came away pretty positive, I think, on that, uh, on that article as far as um, you know, upcoming growth. And with that as just a little bit of an intro, I um, want to save the time here to for the interview with with Dan. Um, I'll inter- interview, uh, intro our guest, uh, Dan Walsh, CEO of Track Intermodal. Do we have uh, Dan? Yeah, I'm on How are you? Good, thanks. Good good to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure. I appreciate you having me and, um, and giving Track a voice. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, why don't we start out for those people that are not familiar with track intermodal, maybe not even as, as familiar with the um, how the chassis leasing pools work. Um, if you give a little bit of overview of, of your company and the industry. Yeah, sure. So uh, track intermodal is the largest provider of marine and specialty chassis in North America. We have um, in the order of 190,000 uh, units on every rail ramp and every terminal in the country. Um, the way the product is used basically is if you think about the cargo ships coming into the terminals, the boxes come off, they're loaded onto our units, and then they're dispatched to either a where or to uh, you know to a rail ramp, and then onto their next destination where the whole thing happens again. Um, the chassis are provided through a pool where multiple providers um, uh, insert a number of chassis and people draw on them as needed or through direct lease. Uh, primarily to the trucking community, but also to the NBOCCs and the BCOs. Got it. And that hundred ninety thousand units. What's the what's the market share of that? Out of curiosity, uh, it's, uh, I mean, we're the largest. We've been in the order of thirty four to forty percent. Okay, thirty to forty percent. Okay, and you do you do the the chassis for the domestic side as well, or is it really just primarily the the marine chassis? It's primarily marine, but we. We used to, and then we sold our domestic pool in 2018. Um, but in January of 2021, we re-entered the market, and we're pretty happy with how it's progressing. Um, it's certainly uh, an area where we're interested in growing, and we're having a lot of productive conversations with um, with the rail- railways and various other customers. So it's an exciting time for us, but um, certainly one for the future. Yeah, it is an exciting time. And, um, you know, I think most of the people that follow this industry, you know, understand there was a, a chassis leasing shortage in, in about, about two years ago in, in, in 2021. Um, it wasn't just chassis leasing. There were all sorts of issues of congestion in the, in the intermodal market, caused intermodal to lose some, some share to the highway. Can you walk us through a little bit about um, sort of what happened during that period of time? And um, is there any reason to think that couldn't, you know, potentially happen again? Yeah, so I, look, I, I think that it's um, it's more. It wasn't so much a case of a chassis shortage, and, and this isn't semantics. Uh, things just got caught up at points in the supply chain and and didn't move. So, so for example, a key metric is turn times, which is basically the amount of time a chassis is on the street. So, if it goes out from a gate, how long till we get it back? 
And in 21 and 22, um, it was running at nine to 10 days. Currently, it's at six, which is, which is normal. So, um, and in some cases, it doubled. Um, and what was happening was a lot of cases, for example, um, other issues in the supply chain were impacting on the availability of chassis. So, for example, um, if you think about the retailers, they were having difficulty uh, staffing their second shifts and they were also having difficulties um, dealing with packed warehouses. So the solution was to leave the box on a chassis outside in the car park. Mm-hmm. And, and that tightened assets and, and prevented them from getting back in place. We also obviously had operational challenges on the ports. You know, there were a lot of um, containers that needed to be taken off the ports and moved back. It was difficult to get space on the vessels because um, there was so much business for the port-to-port operation. So the point I'm trying to make is that it was a combination of, of factors which led mm-hmm. to uh, lightness on availability of chassis. Um, the other factor, of course, was um, it became difficult to source them because of the intervention, uh, excuse me, the implementation of, of tariffs and countervailing duties on China, which had which had manufactured 90% of North America's chassis, new chassis up until that point. So there was a lag where the domestic manufacturers had to catch up. Um, so the market was capacity constrained as well. So we had operational challenges and capacity constraints and obviously massive surges in demand. Um, if you think about the second part of your question, whether it could happen again, Mike, uh, yeah, that really, as if, as we had COVID where you had nothing, and then you had a massive surge of cargo for two years. Um, so could it happen again? Yeah. yeah. Will it happen on the same scale? I don't think so. Um, but it could. Right, so, you know, what's the lesson that we learned? And that is that we have to continue to invest. And, and so we continue to add new chassis to our fleet. Uh, we continue to upgrade and refurbish our existing fleet. And we're positioning for an increase in volume, which will definitely come. We all know that our industry is cyclical. Um, but we have to continue to invest even in the soft markets to make sure we're ready for that. Yeah, that was a great uh, overview. Uh, so it's really, um, there were enough chassis, they just weren't being utilized productively because they were stuck in various points in the supply chain. So so it's a very interesting uh, there. Um, I wanted to ask you, I mean, what are you seeing right now in, in the market? I mean, we've seen this sort of in our data, um, yeah, actually somewhat of a, a volume surge. I have a couple of sonar charts I can run run by you. If we can uh, bring those on the, on the on the screen, so this is uh, international intermodal volume. So this is going to include the forty foot, twenty foot, um, and, and you see the white line is twenty twenty three. You see it's actually picked up, at least in our data um, from the past uh, couple of years. Of course, below where it was in, in twenty twenty, and then on the domestic side, which is the next uh, chart we have, um, you know, seen you know some kind of an October surge, you know, there too. Are, are you seeing something similar in, in the market from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, we're seeing, uh, I'd call it a bump rather than a surge, Mike, but we're definitely seeing okay. some increase in activity. Um, I, you know, I think what shocked everyone today were the GDP numbers that came out, are just incredible, 4.9% growth in the last three months, more than double the previous quarter of 2.1. You know, despite mortgage rates being, uh, you know, north of 7% and the Fed lifting them 11 times, Um since uh, since the previous summer, summer of twenty one, so you know, I, I, and and inflation, you know, three point seven where it was nine percent. So, I, I, you know, the the economy is much more resilient than I think many of us thought, myself included. 
uh, to be honest. And, you know, that's a pretty staggering GDP number, in my opinion. And if you, and there's, and obviously that's been reflected, as you point out, in increased demand, increased activity, uh, because the American consumer is still pulling goods towards them as well as services. And, and we're having to, to manage that volume. I think the um, some of the metrics certainly point to an increase in um, volume, but more so in the second half of, of 2024. And I think the, um, yeah, I mean, you've got an 8.8% increase forecast from the National Retail Federation, you know, in the first half of 24 compared to 23. Um, yeah, I think that could well happen, but the first half of 23 was pretty tough. I think that we're more likely to see sustained growth in the second half of 2024. Um, the only thing that worries me in that context is the perceived disconnect between supply and demand on the steamship line side where there's just so much extra capacity being added um, that currently far exceeds demand at a time when older vessels are not being scrapped. Um, that, that, you know, the onward rate pressure. Um, but, but I do believe in the American consumer. I believe in the American economy. And I think historically, if you look at GDP growth, chassis and container growth is very tightly correlated to that. Um, so if the US GDP continues to grow, so will the demand for our product and our services. Yeah, that, that comment that, you know, the excess capacity on the ocean lines, I mean, certainly we're, we're seeing that as well. How does that flow through to, to your business? Well, so the, the, it means if you think about bigger vessels, um, you know, less vessel or cargo in a congested, you know, area. I mean, I think that there's there's some operational nuance to actually handling those bigger vessels, um, but obviously the 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 main impact is rate pressure, and that's not just on our business; that's on everyone in the supply chain. Yeah, if the, there's not as much money available in moving a container. Um, as there was before, then everyone's looking for a saving at all points in the supply chain, and so it just gets passed along. So it puts pressure on outfits to operate very efficiently and to make sure that they're not burdening their businesses with unnecessary overhead or expense and that they're able to service the customers you know, even despite those challenges. So I'd say a combination of, of cost and operational challenges. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. I uh, wanted to ask you also about just potential changes um, in uh, North American supply chain as far as where goods are are imported. Uh, it seems like you know there was this shift towards the East Coast ports for a period of time, and then kind of COVID hit and needed things more quickly, and then just kind of a shift back to the West Coast ports, and then the West Coast, Coast ports got congested, and then it was the shippers were kind of saying, well, maybe we should diversify and have them in lots of different ports. Um, and I would imagine that for your business, you would have to relocate chassis to different pools potentially if some are growing faster than others. But, but what are your thoughts on on all that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, we're on every location nationally, but there is a bit of, we call it positioning and handling. So there's work to be done in terms of managing the fleet to make sure that you have the units in the right place to, to, to meet the volume. And there's an art to that, obviously. Um, I think the people at track fortunately are brilliant at it they're far better at it than i am for example and 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 they do it for a living and, and have, have done it very well for 50 plus years so where the cargo arrives is not necessarily that big an issue for us 
I do think the dynamic that we're seeing right now is that some of the volume that moved away from the West Coast is moving back. And I saw that LA, for example, was up 14% in September 23 v September 22. And that's the second month in a row that it's had you know very material growth against the same month in the previous year. Still down 18.6%. You know, for the first nine months of the year compared to 2022. But it suggests that some of the cargo that moved away is moving back now that there's uh, more certainty around the labour contract and some of the congestion issues have gone away. I would also add, though, that historically, when volumes moved away from the West Coast, not all of it has gone back. And if you look at the growth of, of some of the ports in the South Atlantic, for example, and also the Gulf, you know, Houston is growing materially. Um, I don't think all of the volume that went there is going to go back to the West Coast necessarily because, as you point out, the ship has made the tough decision. They've made the chain, and they don't necessarily want to send it all um, back to the West Coast. F- final comment on that is the, the, the shift of manufacturing capacity away from China into the Southeast Asian countries, notably India, uh, potentially opens up a route through the Suez Canal uh, to the east coast of the United States. So there could be a shift in how product is distributed in North America um, when you consider all of those factors. But there will still be, in our opinion, a lot of product arriving that's going to need to be distributed. And that's the more important thing for us, that there's product to move. And when you're national, you know, you're going to be involved in moving it. Yeah, you'll move it wherever it is. Um, you'll supply the chassis. Um, wanted to ask you also about e-commerce. And this is a question I get sometimes is like, well, does all the e-commerce growth actually hurt intermodal? And my sort of response is, well, in order to have it in two hours, like Amazon promises, it kind of needs to be pretty close to your house already. And UPS is the biggest you know, co- you know company moving on intermodal anyway. Um, but what are your thoughts on, on, on e-commerce and how that ultimately um, translates to intermodal growth? Yeah, I, look, I, I think that um, COVID accelerated the development of e-commerce or the you know the customer. Um, in my opinion, it, let me let me be more succinct. In my opinion, um, consumer behaviour changed on the back of COVID and accelerated the development of e-commerce by a decade at least. Um, and and that shows up in the numbers. You, you can see that it continues to grow year on year. It continues to grow as a percentage of retail sales. But but to your point about the consumer expectation it really means that customers want it faster they want to be able to order it online they want it faster and if they don't like it they want to be able to return it for free and for us as participants in the supply chain that puts a lot of unique operating challenges on us and on our customers so our customers you know implemented express services from southeast asia to the u.s to get these products there quickly and they have to have units available. They can't then be delayed because there's no chassis. So that led to them changing their models. Some of them wanting private pools, wanting uh, term lease arrangements, which we obviously are able to service. We say yes to our customers. Um, and again, the requirement that you've got a national footprint so that you can deal with the additional locations which are emerging for that final mile delivery, as you talked about, where You've got more nodes in the supply chain than you had before because of the, the, the need to deliver from the final mile to the customer's home as opposed to a retail outlet. So, um, look, e-commerce is here to stay. It's only going to get bigger. 
that's how people like to consume these days. The retailers are going to uh, insist on having the best possible uh, electronic portal to manage the customer interface, and they're going to press all of us in the intermodal supply chain to be faster, more efficient, and more responsive support the customers and that's not going away that is only going to accelerate in my opinion yeah it does seem like the railroads are taking the service aspect of this more seriously um it seems like most of the rail ceos elevated that in 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 terms of um importance having maybe more resources than the bare minimum you know for for when there's volatility and and, in demand and all those things um so to agree with you on all those things I want to ask you, I mean, you have on your, your website um, some interesting um, you know, video on the refurbishment of the chassis in the field. And can you talk to, to me a little bit about you know, sort of what that does to extend the life of the chassis and, and, and upgrade the equipment? Yeah, um, it's been revolutionary for us. And I don't use that word lightly. I, like, we really didn't have an upgrade program or a refurbishment program before 2019 we had one but not at the scale that was needed and basically when we think about the life cycle of a chassis we just think about the quality of the frame because everything else can be replaced every other part um, can be put back on that same frame and the asset can be put back into use and and very simply it's just about removing all the components um, dealing with any pitting and, and, and blasting the frame then getting it painted getting the unit uh, reassembled and then get it, getting it back into circulation and that's fantastic for us because um, obviously it, uh, it it's a, has a positive impact on the investment of capital that's needed to support the business ongoing but also provides a better higher quality safer unit to have out on the roads and if you think about the amount of investment that all the IEPs have made into the chassis pools since the steamship lines uh, divested them in the you know around 2010 2013 um it's it's billions of dollars and it was needed because the units were run down um that investment's been ongoing and so not it's not just a case of adding new units to improve the quality but the the existing fleet the base fleet has been elevated to a higher standard and that's why a lot of the safety issues, frankly, that occurred um, in the early 2000s do not occur at the same frequency. The quality of the units is is far better. Yeah, that's good. And and so that seems like, you know, quality units is better. You can refurbish them. Maybe you don't need to have as many manufactured, which um, maybe at least partially alleviates that risk you were talking about earlier with the, um, the manufacturing capacity. But um, could you, you know, describe that a little bit? So... Is the is the manufacturing industry fully responded to the 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 tariff situation of the domestic OEMs, um, you know, available to to, to build those um, chassis? And just out of curiosity, what, what what's a typical you know lead time if you were to place an, an order and how, how long do you get it? Yeah, so it was really a, a tale of two cities. I can tell you, during twenty one and twenty two, it was rough. It was just very hard to get in the time frame that you needed it to service the demand and so we had to clean up a lot of that so we still had a bunch of orders coming through in 23 um, and they were all filled by the middle of the year um, but I, and now it's pretty easy to get a chassis because there's softness in terms of demand and people are making use of the assets they have 
um, rather than purchasing units that they don't need at the current time. Um, and, and the lead time now is in the order of a couple of months, um, perhaps even shorter in, in some cases. And there's ample production capacity available. Now, when the market is back to steady state, I still consider it to be depressed from a volume perspective. When the market's back to a steady state, there will be a need for ongoing investment in the domestic manufacturing market to meet those needs. But there have been some fairly sizable players that have entered the market. Greenbrier is a good example. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, Randon is another one, a Brazilian manufacturer that's making products for, for North America now, as well as the US domestic uh, manufacturers. So if you believe in a free market like I do, where there's a need, it'll get filled. And that's what seems to be happening. It was a little little bumpy at the start, but we're making material progress, and, and I feel good about where we are now. Yeah, it doesn't Greenbrier is a, a natural one to build those. They build all the different you know, rail car you know types. Um, they've built most of the intermodal well cars that are that are in the field. Um, so that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, wanted to ask you. I mean, there's there's been a lot of news we've we've posted on um, freight waves about collaboration between the railroads to extend the reach of intermodal. I think some of it was maybe the competitive response to CP acquired in Kansas City Southern. Um, but which ones of those, if any, stood out that that seemed to make a, a big difference going forward in, in your view? I think the, the Kansas City Southern one that you talked about is, is interesting. I mean, there's going to be a lot of automotive activity coming out of Mexico, I think. And, and you know, the fact that runs all the way from Canada to Mexico is a big change. I think, in terms of intermodal capacity. Um, I think the point that you made earlier about um, the, the, the rails being more serious about service, I think that's true. I don't think they weren't serious about it before, but I think that they understand that that is a way to differentiate themselves and it's also a specific requirement of the customer and, um, and have made a lot of uh, investment to improve that as well. And I think that was necessary just because of the evolution of consumer demand. Um, so for, for mine, I, you know, the big one I think is that you've now got a line that runs from Canada to Mexico and, and all the way through America. Mm-hmm. And I think as Mexico emerges as a more important trading partner, partner for North America, um, which it seems to be on the back of uh, the decoupling that's taking place from China in particular, then mm-hmm. then that that uh, corridor I think is going to be increasingly utilised. I think that's going to be that's going to be a big area of growth. Yeah, it seems to help the rail proposition overall um, to not have as many interchanges uh, with with different rails. Um, so I think it's exciting. Uh, have you heard anything interesting recently on the drayage industry? I know for a period of time there was you know drayage capacity shortage if you go back a couple of years but um any sort of recent trends on drayage that you've heard well the, i think the, the big thing is the uh, you know when you had covid loads of people entered the industry and now they're exiting <laughs> um and it doesn't seem very capacity constrained I, I, i'm sure mike you can recall we all can when there just wasn't enough drivers and and people would pay anything to get someone to drive a and and then people started surging into the market, um, not all of them legitimate, frankly, you know, and um, and then the market, you know, corrected and it was a very hard reset and it became difficult for a lot of people who had made investments and entered that market, sadly, to continue their operations. 
So, you know, I think, uh, you know, my sense is that it's nearing the bottom of, of the um, downward trend for the freight market. There could still be a little bit more to go, but I will say that I think it's very difficult and challenging times for a number of the, the drage providers out there, and they're good people. They're our customers and, and, and our friends, and I mean, it's, uh, it's a very, very challenging market at the moment um, for drage, in my opinion. Yeah, certainly wish those guys the the best. Um, hardworking guys that do, do that every day and congestion and dealing with all the issues uh, going in and out of the, the terminals and those things. Um, you got about a minute left. I want to ask you do, you, do you have any thoughts on refrigerated intermodal? Do you think it's going to have a big impact on the, the industry you know, going forward? Or do you think it's just too many moving parts, too much of a time constraints and, and too much risk of um, you know cargo loss? It's got to be. It's got to become more reliable for it to really take off because of the. It's a, you know, it's a, a because of the nature of the product that's utilised in, and it's just got to be. You've got to have uh, sort of cold chain custody. You've got to have um, tightness in your delivery windows, and and some of the variations that we've all learned to live with in a model just won't work. So I think that we're going to have to improve. Um, reliability for it to really take off but uh, it's worth doing because the demands there if you look at the growth of food service and and the growth of like for example cult storage locations in north america it, it's off the charts and the demand isn't going away so um so we need to get it right because potentially that's a, a thick growth vein for all of us in intermodal yeah hopefully the industry can make that happen um yeah so uh dan really appreciate your thoughts uh, thanks so much again for joining me on uh, People Speaking Rail. How can people reach out to you and uh, Trek Intermodal? Uh, yeah, well, um, again, Mike, thanks for the time. Um, really appreciated the chat and uh, you know, appreciate everything that Freight Waves does for our industry. You guys do a great job and, and we appreciate it. We don't take it for granted. Thank you. Okay, thank you.